Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist. But having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? You are very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's me, Kennedy, once again, trying to inject Owen McDevitt's energy. You know, um... We're missing his energy. Mm. Well, no, it's, no, you're replacing it there pretty much like for like, I would have thought. You, you know, Martin Tyler is not in the, the first flush of youth. Y- yeah. I mean, uh, that's fair enough, isn't that? So he's, he's an elder statesman, a doyen of the And yet his, the industry. and it's live. And know, it's live! It's, it's top class. I mean, you can't fault it. Yeah. Now he is a he it's, is a it's enthusiasm on a, yeah it's enthusiasm on a industrial scale. I went on a trip once with Martin Tyler from Vienna to Bern. I'd say that he knows a fair share about Innsbruck that. actually Innsbruck yeah. to Bern yeah shorter it's about six or seven hours on the train I think. Talking about the Habsburgs, um, I can't remember everything we talked about. It was eight years ago now, but I do remember his notes. Mm. Copious, <laughs> copious. I mean, like Leonardo da Vinci's notebooks, mm. you know, <laughs> but with with many different colors of of pen. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a kind of a. I've you know the way you often see commentators now tweeting their uh, match notes. Yeah. They can they kind of it's obviously something they can do now that they used to be able to do. And I'm always struck by the number of commentators that use at least three different color pens mm. in their notes. And also by the fact that they're still writing out these notes. Yeah. And not like putting, not sort of computerizing it in some way. Is it nearly a, a, a sort of badge of honor now amongst commentators? The more outlandish looking your page of notes, the more kind of quirky and eccentric it looks, the better. Well, may, yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know how much of it is about looks. Maybe they are thinking that the actual process of writing out the notes is what makes you learn the yeah. content. I must say, I never found that myself, especially if you're trans- if you're going with different color pens. I kind of then find myself because I've done I've done mm. it myself. You know, no, it's not for not for commentating on matches. God no, 
Uh, but, but you know, if if you ever needed to to do notes to do study for whatever an mm. exam or something like that, sometimes uh, you know you'd get into that neat frame of mind. It's like, oh, I want to be really neat with this. You know, I'll do these really good. These will be the best notes ever, and have different color pen: green pen, red pen, mm. blue pen, maybe even black pen as well. You know what it is, though. What? You're basically, oh, you know, I'm studying. What yeah. you're actually doing is just sort of a kind of notation. Constant, exactly. Which means that, like, I've done six hours of study, but all you've actually done is just mix up five different colors. I don't remember pens. anything. I've just been thinking about just what, what color should this line be in capitals? Should mm-hmm. this line, should I do joined up writing or, you know, try that again? It's a level above like being on Twitter, but I mean, it's, it's not many levels above that. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought. Uh, we're going to talk later to Jonathan Wilson. Uh, an end of an era at Chelsea is what uh, all the newspapers are saying today Rory Smith will also be joining us to talk about Rafael Benitez's dilemma on the other show today we're going to talk to US Murph about Donald Trump and there's also a listener yes. who managed to get on air our first ever to call you out yes but uh, before you get into your report on sport uh, you do have some work to do Ken uh, because as you know uh, Mark Horgan is sitting in for on this week and he took on that onerous task on one condition that you do a super special Champions League ghouls roundup just oh. for him. Uh, he wanted to use the awesome power of that office for good and give the people, or, you know, 53% of the people, uh, what they wanted. So do you think you can make that little boy's dream come true? <sighs> the magpies are the, the most intelligent of birds, and 11 magpies would probably have made a better job of this FA Cup tie than humans selected by Steve McLaren. Ghouls. Oh, oh, what a goal! Oh, that's a magnificent goal! Goals. Interesting. Very interesting! Oh, Ken's goals. I was, it wasn't bad, was it? Real Madrid 2, Roma 0. It's about time they okay. renamed Real Madrid's home ground the Bernabeu, judging by their booing of star forward Cristiano Ronaldo. But the temperamental star tore through the middle like a train going choo-choo for a goal-scoring coup that left the Boo Boys fitting blue. <laughs> James added... James? Hammers added a beautiful second. But Ronaldo then committed a string of boo-boos that gave the Boo crew plenty to poo-poo. Uh, Wolfsburg won, Ghent nil. The contest was settled when Julian Draxler picked out Andre Schürrle with an accurate ball, giving him a chance he surely couldn't miss. And he didn't. <laughs> Chelsea won. PSG 2. It really felt like the end of an era at Chelsea last night, the lowering of a blue flag that once flew so proudly over Europe. Chelsea are out of the Champions League, the competition that they love so much and are highly unlikely to qualify for next season. So hang on, this is actually just from the Times. <laughs> this isn't... I don't know what happened to my text. <laughs> that was, it wasn't bad, was it? <laughs> <sighs> there weren't that many Champions League games on this weekend, and for that, at least we should be thankful. They weren't great games. Well, the Chelsea PSG was a good game. We will talk, uh, I guess, a bit about that, both in this report and sport, upcoming report and sport, and Jonathan Wilson. Should we get into that? Yeah, Let's why not? Get uh, but the mother of all games mm. is how Jurgen Klopp is describing the Europa League tie between... Liverpool and Manchester United, first leg tonight. Thank you, Champions League, for that little appetizer over the last two nights. <laughs> Time for the main course. The mother of all games is a uh, a piece of rhetoric first made famous by Saddam Hussein. Mm. The mother of all battles is what he promised. Uh, it didn't turn out that way uh, in the in the case of the Gulf War. Mm. Um, it, it, that was a bit of a trope, though, wasn't it? He was. Uh, I seem to recall. In, you know, I'm not entirely sure of what Hot Shots movie it was, but was it 
the Hot Shots franchise where they ordered the mother of all pizzas? Oh, I don't know, Ken. I don't, I'm, I'm swimming far from shore here. It was around the same time, all right, so I wouldn't be surprised if they had, uh, if they had gone there. But um, I, I was struck by the reports about the referee, and it reminded me of something else around the Gulf War, or that era, uh, was George Bush. Remember George, George H.W. Bush, not yeah. George W. Bush. Can we not just call him George Bush and then have George W. Um, no, because it's like it's 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 a similar thing that's happened with um, Ronaldo. George Bush is now George W. Bush, and you kind of have to say George H. W. Bush, really, um, to be uh, to for people to know that you're talking about the person that we used to call George Bush. Okay. Um, he <laughs> he was famously uh, referred to as a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> this was, uh, I think it was around the time of Iran-Contra. Uh, and wasn't it Roger Ailes, the Fox News guy? Someone basically uh, had, had called him a wimp and the tag stuck. Wimp. Because he was, I mean, there's nothing really wimpy about him. He was a, a wealthy scion of the East Coast establishment. You know, he was like a, a kind of arch-preppy academically outstanding uh, you know didn't he fight in the, in the second world war he was the director of the CIA come on was he really a wimp on the other hand he did have a sort of longer than average neck with a more uh, prominent than average Adam's apple mm. and we all know you know the wimp tag can sometimes stick and it was and it was said by people that maybe his uh, you know uh, what happened in the desert you know, and Storm and Norman and all that was his way of proving to the world that, in fact, he was far from being a wimp. He was all man. Uh, he, uh, and that this tag uh, sort of caused him to be more aggressive than he otherwise would have been. I couldn't help thinking of him uh, when reading of the recent uh, history of the referee for this Europa League match tonight, uh, Carlos Velasco Carballo. They called him the wimp referee. <laughs> Uh, why did they? Why did they call him? The because referee? because he was the ref when. Do you remember the World Cup match between Brazil and Colombia? Yes. And Colombia broke was, his back. There was like fifty odd fouls in the game, uh, culminating in Neymar fracturing his, uh, or you know, one of the Colombian players jumping mm. into Neymar and fracturing the uh, one of his vertebrae, his tailbone, I think it was. It was a pretty sore looking injury. Uh, and there were very few bookings handed out by the referee who totally lost control of the game. And the referee was Senor Carlos Velasco Carballo. So it's going to be all that war? He's changed, he's changed uh -huh. his attitude, is all I'm saying. Uh, 25 matches this season, 9 red cards and 138 bookings. 4 red cards in his last 6 games. Mm. Uh, he now arrives at Anfield to see this match between Liverpool and Manchester United. It's a game that tends to produce quite a lot of red cards anyway, even in uh, English football, which is where all the previous editions of this fixture have taken place. And uh, so, yeah, I guess, is he the first ever foreign referee? Yeah, I was just going to make that rather pointless observation myself, Ken. Yeah, <laughs> and it is a game in which uh, Liverpool are going all out for revenge. Uh, mm. This is what uh, Jurgen Klopp is basically saying. There's an interesting contrast between Klopp and Louis van Gaal in terms of their... 
Trump literally couldn't be bigging up this game more. He well, he couldn't. He's 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 done the Saddam Hussein on it. He's <laughs> promised the mother of all battles or the the mother of all football yeah. matches. In fairness, whatever. Um, you know, uh, this is what you want when when you when you were young. He does he does say I don't believe in enemies. Uh, but realistically, we know that he's telling his players to go out there and destroy Manchester United. Whereas Ivan Hall's approach is completely different. It's this is basically the same as any other game. Uh, if we beat Liverpool, it wouldn't make me any happier than if we'd beaten West Brom in the, the last game, of which obviously they lost. Now, you could argue that the Premier League is a more important competition. Maybe those three points, pff, the end of the season, they would have rather had those three points than this victory. But, um, yeah, he. I mean, everything about them is, is kind of really opposite. You know, from Van Gaal's extremely pared-back uh, persona on the touchline to... Klopp's, you know, bear-hugging style. I mean, Adam Lallana was doing a press conference with Klopp uh, uh, talking about this famous photograph. I mean, you know this kind of Pieta-style photograph of Klopp and Lallana, where Klopp is, is like, grabbing Lallana, who, who just appears to be limp like a rag doll in his arms. You know, it was after the Tottenham game, the first mm. game that he, that he had. Um, it was his first game, so I didn't know what to expect coming off the pitch, said Lallana. He went for a big hug, and I just fell into his arms. Uh, but he said, this is just a sign of his appreciation uh, for you. It means a lot as a player if your manager is genuinely showing some affection to you. If they show thanks, it makes you feel good. It makes you want to do it again and keep going. Um, yeah, this is, I, I don't know. I mean, Van Gaal obviously has a completely opposite opinion. He's like, it doesn't matter. We're all professionals. Yeah. These these cheap displays of emotion, uh, this, this vulgar uh, display means nothing. Klopp is an extremely handsy manager. He is. I mean, as much as Brendan Rodgers. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was watching him on the pitch after the Palace game on Sunday. Yeah. And he did. it was Lalana again, actually. He grabbed Lalana. I mean, Klopp is about 18 inches taller than Lalana. Maybe maybe not quite a foot and <laughs> a half. Inches. Maybe not quite a foot and a half. But it kind of looked that way on the pitch. Where he kind of, he may have picked him up and squeezed him. And then it kind of, the squeeze turned into like kind of a headlock, you know. And I don't, I don't know that, that it, it does a lot for a professional footballer's, you know, frame of mind to be put in the headlock by your own manager. Yeah. You know, as if to say, thanks, kiddo. Well, thanks he, for helping me out there, kiddo. He obviously thinks it works. I suppose that the, he is tactile. Rogers was very tactile. But maybe there's a difference between them and that Klopp is more about these, you know, very forceful hugs and slaps. Mm. Whereas... Rogers was more the kind of manager who might gently cradle your face in his hands. Yeah. You know? Sort of use his fingers to sort of push back your forelock. Mm. And, you know, kind of look deeply into your eyes, whereas Klopp is more slapping and, and you know, maybe, is there a difference there? Oh, I, th- I think so, yeah. I, I think that there is a subtle but, but significant difference there. There is a big game between uh, Tottenham also and Dortmund. Tottenham are in Dortmund today, and they uh, are up against the really inform. Dortmund's side and it's a big dilemma now for Maurizio Pochettino does he go for this game or does he do a Pellegrini on it and pick a, pick his reserves you know on the basis that Dortmund are a tough game and the odds of beating them are maybe not that good it will be a draining battle even if they do beat them maybe now it's time to prioritise uh, you know the league and go for that. Even though it's maybe even a long shot in the league at this stage. Yeah, um, I think if they if they had beaten Arsenal, I don't think it'd be even a decision. I think he'd just keep playing his team 
But then, you know, you get a negative result, or at least not as positive a result as you uh, uh, might have liked, uh, and as looked likely uh, going into the last 20 minutes of that game. Then I think maybe you do start trying to uh, uh, second-guess yourself a little bit. Yeah. Of course, you, you offered the example of doing a Pellegrini. He doesn't have to do a Pellegrini. He just needs to, like, drop three players. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think he needs to, you know, throw the hat at it completely. I think, I really think that he should go for it. I think he should try to beat Dortmund and uh, and play this game like he's been playing all the games. Uh, I don't what about think, the Pochettino slump, though? I think he just has to pretend that's not going to happen or ignore it. I mean, if it happens, it happens. But one way to guarantee it will happen in terms of the results when the people look back at it is to pick a reserve team and lose this game and get knocked out by Dortmund. Then it will kind of look like a Pochettino slump, mm. even though it isn't. I mean, I suppose the question is, is this wasting energy on a in a, in a lost cause or a, or a kind of a forlorn cause let's say uh, wouldn't, wouldn't it be better just to concentrate on the one competition that's most important and that you have a realistic chance in if you put together a big string of results I actually think he should continue to go for it uh, I think the I think the, the best hope is to keep at that kind of competitive pitch that they've been at and not sort of start to go well you know let's write off that game besides the chance to play against to test themselves against Dortmund I think is a big chance for Tottenham uh, it's the kind of big game that they want to be playing in, and there's no point in having this game and then not treating it seriously. So I hope that's what he does. I mean, we'll see what happens later on. Um, for the time being, I guess we should mention the Champions League. Uh, <laughs> it's the second competition, of course, in Europe. Rio Ferdinand currently doing an uh, Ask Rio. He's on a train, yeah. so you can you can yeah. get onto him and ask him uh, stuff. Uh, he's pouring uh, was pouring praise last night in Zlatan, but uh, Zlatan is not. Uh, although he says this guy could, you know, should be the, f- the free transfer English clubs are looking for. Zlatan's contract is up in the summer and it looks like he's not going to stay at PSG. Uh, Rio says he could be the catalyst uh, for... He, he mentioned Arsenal. You know, they signed, they signed this guy and suddenly they're, they've got a winning mentality. But he also is uh, asked by somebody who are the top five athletes in the world right now. <clears throat> I'm going to ask you, Kieran, to nominate... Who you think makes his list of the top five athletes, and that's all sports, all sports in the world right now, without cheating and looking at his. Okay, uh, LeBron James. No, but in, there is another representative from that sport. Steph Curry. Steph Curry. Uh, mm. I'll tell you. Messi. Messi. Lionel Messi. Okay. Messi is there. Um, might he give me the give me the three other sports and I'll. Might he uh, have chosen another football player? He oh, has. Cristiano Ronaldo at Cristiano get, yep, makes okay, it there. Cool. And then there's another. There's a famous Manchester United fan who sometimes goes on social media to vent his rage when they when they lose. Ken Darty, <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, who's also maybe one of the greatest athletes in the world. Two-time world champ. So Any, anyway, I'll 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 over I'll overlook that slight of Ken Darty there, Ken. Yeah. Uh, Oh, uh, Usain Bolt. Usain Bolt. Yeah. Which leaves only one person, one space free in the top five athletes in the world. They yeah. are all men. You can either give me the nationality or the sport of the fifth person. He's Irish. Oh, uh, <laughs> Rory McIlroy. No, it's Conor McGregor, isn't it's it? It's Conor McGregor. Mm. Conor McGregor on uh, Rio Ferdinand's top five uh, athletes, which is pretty interesting, I would have thought. Nate Diaz might have something to say about that. For the week that's in it. Nate anyway. Diaz was sixth. Uh, yeah, he only gives five. Uh, so apparently he rates Conor McGregor pretty highly. Up there with Steph Curry, Usain Bolt, Lilo Messi, and Cristiano Ronaldo. That's not bad. 
well, not I mean, bad company. Listen, is BT Paymasters will be happy with that one. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> actually, Steph Curry, NBA is uh, showed on BT. Is as well. it? Yeah. So that, that's yeah. Okay. It's all becoming clear uh, now. No, surely Rio Ferdinand is not that cynical. Again. I don't believe. I don't believe it. Zlatan was brilliant uh, last night, and this was like. Uh, you know, maybe people, uh, you know, English football has always had a kind of a slightly dismissive attitude towards Zlatan. Uh, and he's kind of done it again now against an English team. Uh, scored one, made one. Um, afterwards, uh, Nasser Al-Khalifi, who is the president of PSG, <laughs> came out with an interesting quote. He's truly magical, a fantastic player. Every match he proves... He's better. I don't speak often, but this evening, yes, I spoke a little with the players before the game because it was very important. I asked them to give everything. I believe only in victory. Defeat doesn't exist for me. I asked them to die on the pitch. So with that inspirational message ringing in their ears, they gave Chelsea... (laughs) A damn good thrashing. If Roman Abramovich came down and told Chelsea's players to die on the pitch, do you think it would be good for morale? Uh... I don't think it'd be great for morale. Yeah. You know, I, no, I, there, there's an element of menace there that I, that I, I, w- I wouldn't appreciate. I don't think. Hazard's performance uh, was picked out then by a lot of people, particularly the way in which the offhand manner in which he indicated he was done in the game. It, he was, he just sort of looked over, just gave casually gave the substitution. You know, spin my fingers around each other, sign. Just it was like. He was so matter-of-fact about it. He didn't really seem to be... Hazard is another one of these players who doesn't really seem to understand that a lot of what people are looking for in English football is for you to... Surface nonsense. That yeah. they, they, you, know, uh, the, you know, the example of a, a Liverpool new signing hmm. uh, going on Twitter, hashtag YNWA, Y-N-W-A. That'll, that'll pretty much do you for the first eight or nine months. Yeah. You don't need, I mean, that you, you, you can't underestimate that. Uh, Hazard did it a couple of times last night. Roy Keane picks up on his swapping shirts at halftime with Angel Di Maria. Uh, a lot of other people are mentioning his apparent lack of, you know, concern about the fact that Chelsea are losing. He's just coming off. Um, uh, I, I do think, I don't know, I mean, he, he's obviously lacked form. I mean, he hasn't scored in the league all season. It's been, a, it's been an unbelievable collapse from him. But uh, I don't know whether to condemn it. I think actually on balance, yes. I think a player who playing in England needs to, should at, should at this point have learned that it's important to do these, to wear your heart and your sleeve in certain ways. Mm. And um, this is kind of part of your job. You know what I mean? And to not do it, even if you think, well, it's obviously stupid. But to not do it, to not observe these things, to not, to swap with the shirts with Dimery at halftime, to kind of not, appear to be overly bothered is actually a dereliction of your duty as a player in English football it's part of the contract why not not just do it in the tunnel I mean if he wants Di Maria's shirt and his teammates are going to see him he didn't care about his teammates seeing him on the pitch so why would it you know so do it in the tunnel then yeah you know and then just take all of this kind of nonsense as he would see it I'm sure commentary out of the equation altogether. Maybe he wants people to see him doing it. I mean, it is a kind of a thing that players do now. The top players swap only with the top players. See Sergio Ramos on Instagram. Grazie, Capitano. Un orgullo y un honor tener su camiseta. I'm sorry. Can it's a pride. Was... It is a great pride. It is a great pride and an honor to have your shirt. 
Capitano. Who is Capitano? Grazie, uh, Capitano. That would be Francesco Totti. Francesco Totti. Um, and they've, they've gotten, uh, you know, Totti's in a suit. Ramos is not wearing a shirt. But they're swapping shirts. Totti and Ramos. Two greats. You know, gods recognize gods. Uh, so maybe that's what Hazard was doing. Maybe that's why he didn't do it in the tunnel. Um, or somewhere where it couldn't be seen. It's because he wanted it to be seen. It's like, well, check out the kind of company that uh, Eden Hazard uh, keeps. It could be it, I don't know. Uh, is there some Sepp Blatter news, Ken? <laughs> the news being there is no news? Just Sepp. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Sepp. Um, I think he's 79 now. I'm not sure, actually, what, it, what age he is. But he says... Uh, He's a little bit peeved about the fact that the FIFA, the recent FIFA Congress, at which they elected Gianni Infantino, there was no big Sepp Blatter moment in which uh, FIFA collectively recognised the great contribution that he'd mm. made. The 35-metre-high Brian Driscoll banner should yeah. have been brought into the auditorium. Yeah. Obviously with Sepp Blatter's face on it, not Brian Driscoll's, that wouldn't make any sense. He felt that that should have happened. Um, FIFA obviously felt otherwise. Um my only wish uh, is that I am recognised at the next Congress. He got interviewed by Richard Keyes. I mean, what does this man want? <laughs> You've reached the top. Uh, yeah, Richard Keyes came all the way to Switzerland, I think, to interview him from, from Qatar. Um, but he says, uh, uh, what was it he's saying? He's talking about retirement. It's a bit of a change of pace. For Sepp Blatter, you know, suddenly he's sitting at home all the time. Travel is way down the list, he says, of, of stuff that he wants to do. As FIFA president, I visited 200 countries, constantly doing Sudoku and crossword puzzles in aeroplanes, reading detective stories. I have now really had enough. The nomad is settled. Um, it's amazing he spent all this time on planes doing Sudoku. But it is true, he, he, he thinks planes are a very bad place to work, even if you're like um, Sepp Blatter and can fly everywhere, you know. Uh, pretty sweet conditions, if not not always private, but often and whenever not private, obviously in ultra first class. Um, but it's just not a place where you can do any work. Just a place f uh, flying to travel is to recover, as far as I'm concerned. No documents, no interviews. I'm very determined about it. Sometimes the newspapers, sometimes a crime novel, sometimes Sudoku. Um, but uh, nothing, uh, that's my passion, he says. You need a flexible mind and a talent to combine things. It fascinates me. Uh, but yeah, that's his advice. Advice from a man who knows. Okay, that's it for Ken Early's Report on Sport. He's just a crying big baby. But you cannot call it a player a baby. Coach! Boy, didn't have a I want victory, boy. Didn't have a weapon. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a weapon. Well, it's just the nervousness. You look frustrated on the Which pitch. Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a weapon. You wanted victory. Well, I wanted victory. Which is the game you wanted victory, boy? Didn't have a weapon. Where do you think you got it all wrong today? them in the premiership and we never said they are baby. He's just a crying big baby and you cannot call a player a baby.
Jonathan Wilson is on the line now. Jonathan, you were at Stamford Bridge last night to see Chelsea lose to PSG. A fairly uh, conclusive defeat, I would have to say, over the two legs. I see the Times and the Guardian both talking about this being the end of an era for Chelsea. Was that uh, the impression that you got last night? I, I mean, I think you have to. Um, the fact that since Abamovich arrived in 2003, they've always been in the Champions League and, and they won't be next season. I mean, that, that tells you I think, that something pretty profound has shifted. That, uh, you know, I, I think... If you look back to those days when Mourinho first arrived, um, and obviously the first season they, they qualified under Ranieri, but the the um, you know, Mourinho's first stint, it, it sort of felt that as long as Abramovich was there, as long as the money was there, then of course Chelsea would always be at the top of, of not only the English game, but near the top of the European game. Uh, and sort of, it wasn't... It wasn't perhaps as romantic a quest as, as say, Manchester United hunting down the Champions League in, in the 60s. But there was a similar sense of this is a new force desperate for its first Champions League. And so the fact that the circumstances have changed sufficiently, whether that's to do with the, the, you know, the wider football picture or whether it's to do with Chelsea and the fact that they, they won't be there next season, I, I, you know, I think that does feel like something pretty profound has happened. And, and I think that, that then does lead to questions both about how and why Chelsea have let it slip and, and, and what else is going on? Because Chelsea's collapse this season is, in its way, as bizarre a story as Leicester's rise to the top of the league. You know, to, for a team to, to fall apart so badly, nobody really saw this coming. I mean, you've talked about something profound having shifted, but at this, uh, at this point, is it possible to, to kind of define what that is? Um, I mean, I, I think, as ever, there's, there's a number of factors I think there's a very specific factor to do with Mourinho's toxicity in his in his third season, um, and, and I think that really sort of magnified other issues. I think maybe maybe there's something to do with that 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 group of players that, for whatever reason, a number of them are, were uh, particularly fragile. I mean, Ed Nazar's collapse. I think I mean it must be unprecedented in terms of a football of a year yeah. going from being that good to the point where people were saying. You know, it's not impossible this season. He could push himself into into the category of maybe not quite a Messi or Ronaldo, but certainly a Lewandowski, be one of the top sort of five, eight players in the world. For him to sort of be such a... I mean, you kind of wonder why he's getting picked still. I mean, an extraordinary stat... It doesn't tell the whole picture. An extraordinary stat I, I, I happened to see on Monday is that Danny Rose averages 20% more shots per game than Aiden Hazard this season. So there's, there's something gone wrong there to do with... I know he's had injury issues, but there's something with application. There's something uh, yeah, has, has gone badly awry. I think Nemanja Matic's collapse is, is bizarre as well. You know, the, the fact that Hiddink now sort of seems to see Mikhail John Obi as being, being by far the more reliable of the two. Uh, Diego Costa, I, I guess, is back towards something like his best, but, but his flakiness in the first half, I mean, he only scored four goals, I think, while Mourinho was there. I think he's got 11 since. And I looked like a proper forward again last night. So there's a whole number of players who, who haven't turned it in. But I think actually the more interesting thing is that is the bigger picture of, of what's going on in English football, which is that suddenly, and I don't, I'm not sure anybody really expected this, uh, suddenly we've got a whole range of clubs who could be challenging next season. And the fact, I mean, unless City suddenly come back this season, we'll have a fourth different champion in four years. That hasn't happened since '93. The time before that was '73. Um, in, in both of those years, I guess, are significant in that 93 was the start of United's hegemony, 73 was the start of Liverpool's. Well, I'm not sure we're starting a Leicester or a Tottenham hegemony or an Arsenal hegemony if, if they win the league this season. So, 
you know, I think you look at next season and, and I mean, okay, it's possible Guardiola turns City into this relentless winning machine, but it's equally possible you have the four richest clubs and Liverpool and Tottenham and maybe Everton with new owners, Leicester maybe as champions, West Ham with the Olympic Stadium, Stoke with all these £20 million plus players. And you suddenly have this massive bond fight, which probably is bad news for English clubs in the Champions League, but it's going to be a huge amount of fun. Yeah, well, you say it's you say it's going to be bad for English clubs in the Champions League, but I don't understand why that necessarily follows. If the level of competition is higher uh, within England, or I mean, if, rather, if the if the kind of compulsion to compete is is, is greater, the, the pressure to perform is greater on all these clubs in order to you know fight their way into the top positions in the Premier League, then surely that translates into <clears throat> higher competitiveness in in European games as well. Or at least it should. That's, I mean, that's the, the possible positive. I, I think there's, there's two issues with that. Uh, I mean, I have to say, I, I sort of instinctively believe that to be true, that I, I think there's something very unhealthy about a PSG being 23 points clear. And I, I think yeah, for them playing a game, maybe not against Chelsea, but certainly by the time they come up against a, a Barcelona or a Bayern Munich, that's just a completely different game to anything they face domestically. And that can't be a good thing for them. But I, I think that, you know, there's, there's two other issues. One is the point that, that Van Gaal keeps making, which is the Premier League is, to use his term, a rat race. Well, next season it's going to be rattier and racier. You know, or, or Guardiola's going to walk away with it. But there's the potential for it to be this sort of massive fight in a, in a saloon in a Western with sort of bottles and chairs flying all over the place. Um, but the other issue is that the Premier League is so rich now that maybe the Premier League becomes a priority. Maybe the Champions League... Just, I mean, not only is it not as much fun as the Premier League, and I think there's a distinct sense of that this season, that, oh, it's Chelsea v PSG again. Oh, it's City v Bayern again. Who, oh, will, who will be Blackburn the fourth team again. in the semis with Real Madrid, Barcelona and Bayern Munich kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, the tournament will finally get going in the middle of April, and mm. we've had all this sort of fairly meaningless prelude to that. So the Premier League is more fun. But in, in terms of just cash, maybe, you know, maybe by next season with the new TV deal, it's actually worth more financially to finish second or third in the yeah. Premier League to well, fifth or sixth, and the teams will start to prioritise that. I don't know. I mean, I, I think of, I mean, the Serie A in the you know late 80s and early 90s was comparable in terms of its financial dominance, I guess, to the Premier League now, and they didn't seem to have a problem combining that with winning the European Cup. Um, but but, but the, it's a completely different world because back then you didn't have these super clubs like Barcelona, like Real Madrid, like Bayern Munich. And I think particularly a Bayern Munich who dominate the domestic league so easily that they can put every egg in the Champions League basket. They can afford the, the very best players. You know, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, the very best players were, you know, 90% of them were playing in Italy. For whatever reason, the, the, the great wealth of the, of the Premier League doesn't seem to have tempted the sort of half dozen best players to, to move here. Yeah. Uh, well, I suppose it was, you know, we, we were already talking about Eden Hazard. He, you know, maybe this time last year we would have put him among the half dozen best players in the world. Uh, not so much after his performance this season. I saw that Roy Keane uh, had a return to one of his favourite teams um, uh, when he was talking about Eden Hazard and reckoned that his swapping shirts with Angel Di Maria at half time tells you a lot about what kind of what kind of character he is and what kind and why he's been so hopeless this season. And I couldn't help thinking to myself of uh, the Dortmund Bayern game over the weekend, which was amazing because uh after this game, which was, you know, furiously competitive uh between the two you know, best two teams in Germany and probably two of the best in Europe. 
the final whistle went and the players all stood around as though they were all part of one big team, just having a chat and sort of talking to each other. And I, cu- I couldn't believe how friendly the atmosphere was uh, between these teams. Is it really necessary, uh, as Keane seems to think, to have that kind of, uh, you know, hatred of your opponent, at least, you know, at least during the, while, you know, while the match is taking place in order to, to compete at a high level? I mean, maybe it isn't, but I, I, I guess that the way you interpret what happened at the end of Bayern Dortmund is that Dortmund are sort of, well, yeah, it's quite nice to be competing with this lot, but they're better than us. It's not really a rivalry. Um, I mean, there's a changing shirts thing at half time. I, 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 I mean, I thought Hiddink sort of got got that right last night, which was to say that he'd rather didn't have, but it's not a big deal. Because um, I, I think there is a slight. I mean, it does seem ridiculous that we get worked up about that, but but at the same time. As you go off at half time, shouldn't you be sort of rushing back to the dressing room to get your energy drink and to find out what your instructions are for the second half and to to you know to change your shirt and get a bit of a massage or whatever you do at half time, rather than wandering off having a chat with your mate? And that, that that's that's my problem with it. I can sort of understand players wear a different shirt in the first half to the second half because you don't want to keep the same sweaty cooling down shirt on. So yeah, okay, you've got two shirts to swap. Great, you get two shirts from your position. Um, so the actual act of swapping, I, I don't really have a problem with. But I, I do think there's something slightly odd that your focus is on that rather than on rushing back to the dressing room to, to get the instructions. Yeah, well, I mean, the the other the guy who we actually swapped with was Angel Di Maria, who was one of a number of players in the Chelsea uh, squad, or the PSG squad, rather, who have been kind of abused by English football over the years. I mean, there's Latan Ibrahimovic, who has never played there, has been kind of uh, mocked and denigrated, Maybe not so much in the last couple of years because he's he's proven how great a player he in fact is. But for a long time he was kind of seen as a joke figure. And he's well, David Luiz, uh, who who Chelsea reckoned uh, you know fifty million was the deal of the century. But he's actually much better than any of the centre backs uh, that Chelsea have. Angel Di Maria, who was you know um, <laughs> who left England pretty much in disgrace, and all of them playing really well uh, for Paris Saint Germain. Eden Hazard now is maybe gonna is going to join them. Another player that, you know, couldn't cut in English football, but is probably going to go and play brilliantly for a club in in Europe, whether it's, in, whether it's PSG or somewhere else. I mean, I wonder, is there something, is there something there in terms of the the attitude towards these talented players that tells you why English football seems to be, you know, doesn't seem to translate. It's, it's money doesn't seem to translate into success. Possibly in terms of the lack of patience and, and you know, the willingness to get on players' backs so they don't settle. I mean, I think the Di Maria thing was, was really odd, the circumstances of that, because he did actually play quite well for a couple of months, and then it seemed that that mysterious burglary yeah, caused caused a collapse. But maybe it also says something about the attitude of the players, that it's it's one thing to um, yeah, be able to turn it in every now and again for PSG, and, and you sort of saunter through a lot of the games... Um, I mean, 23 points is an enormous margin. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 th- I think the sort of mockery of La Liga as being a, a league where there's only three teams is, I mean, the, the lies given to that by how well the likes of Sevilla do in the Europa League. But at the same time, there's been twice as many games in Spain as they have been won by four goals or more this season than they have in the Premier League. I think it's 24 in Spain, 12 in the Premier League, 19 in the Bundesliga. So you know, it, it is just the case that the, the, the Premier League, the quality is is more... Uh, equal across the league, and, and that's understandable given the distribution of wealth. The, 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 in terms of prize money, the top team in the Premier League gets one and a half times, or one point five three times what the bottom team gets. In in Germany, I think it's double. In, in Spain, I think it's a factor of eleven point something. So obviously, that's going to be more spread out in Spain, and and maybe there is just a category of player who who really can't 
play 50 games harder season. And um, I think maybe it's slightly ridiculous to expect them to. All right, Jonathan, thanks a million for talking to us. FIFA made a movie recently. Did they? John Delaney could run anything. They did, they did, actually. About themselves? Yeah, about themselves. Oh, that's ego, isn't it? He could run FIFA. Certainly better than Seth Blatter. Yeah, that is, that's incredible ego, but the real movie's on its way. Well, yeah, I'm off to see the Queen tomorrow too, don't forget that. No, no, don't forget that. In 2009, I called him an embarrassment to FIFA and an embarrassment to himself, and I, and I said it to him across the table, just like I'm talking to you, with one or two explosives. He said, no one speaks to me like that. And you said? And I said, what I do. And that was it. We wanted to explain this. And I just asked her to move on. It was an extraordinary moment. She, she was here, she tell you, just stared at her for seven or eight seconds. And I said, move on now, please. And then he moved. When I went in and told him how I felt about him, yeah. and there were some expletive views, we came to an agreement. It's a very good agreement, if they like. And you've used the figure there. Well done to you. So what do you reckon? Is, is Eden Hazard now just another one of that list of uh, talented players distrusted by English football? Di Maria, David Luiz, Glenn Odell. Well, he did win the league. I mean, he was by a mile the best player in the league last year and he won the league. So, I mean, he's obviously completely phoning it in and has been since August. But, yeah. I mean, I think you kind of have to make an exception for a guy who is almost single-handedly I mean Chelsea defended last year and then gave the ball to Hazard uh, and asked him to do something brilliant and he did something brilliant in a lot of their games yeah he's one I mean I, I wonder about his motivation uh, I don't know what's going on with him really yeah. I mean it would be very easy I mean the, the management change seemed like a pretty good time for other players to wake up from their slumber mm. and decide to play even a little bit yeah. and I would have thought I mean and it, it does appear to be just a choice of his if he wants to, I mean, he's that good yeah. that he can't have fallen. His performance can't have fallen off to the cliff where he's putting in one hundred percent effort, and the results of that are what we saw. Yeah, last no, he's night. clearly he's clearly not. But I mean, different players have different types of motivation. I mean, um, you can have you can be motivated by money. You know, there's kind of ex, extrinsic mm-hmm. and intrinsic motivations. He's clearly not an intrinsically motivated guy, like a kind of guy who just wants to be. Even his dad said that, didn't he, last yeah. year? Talking to Mourinho about, please make make him care about this a bit more. Yeah, he's like a normal, he's more like a normal person, I think, than most athletes at his level. Who Most of them have that kind of compulsion, you know, kind of a inner uh, unease or unrest with the things. You know, they need to mm. prove themselves over and over again. And he obviously just feels, hey, I've proven myself already. Like, I won player of the year last year. And it doesn't embarrass him that he's kind of now just... Obviously, wait. He's obviously a guy who takes motivation just from his circumstances, or, or the it kind of has to be the right setup for him. You know what I mean? He obviously has decided he he wants to. Well, it seems to me he's decided he wants to play for a different team now. He's kind of done what he has to do at Chelsea, and he doesn't really seem to think that, you know, he's got anything left to prove, and it's just it's just all falling off a cliff. Uh, but I guess uh, someone else who doesn't have a lot to prove is uh, Rafael Benitez, or maybe he does. Kieran, uh, so many European trophies. And yet, uh, unpopular in in many pockets uh, in English football. Now being linked with the job at Newcastle. Newcastle have been talking to him. uh, And we're going to talk now to Rory Smith uh, from the Times. Rory, who obviously worked uh, closely with Rafael Benitez on his book, Champions League Dreams. Uh, And I'm wondering, Rory, first of all, 
if you're looking at this situation at Newcastle, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the most likely, how likely is Stephen McLaren to still be the manager of Newcastle next Monday when they play Leicester? Uh, as things stand, three, maybe two. Three, two. So there are some doubts here. It's not as though this is a, this is a done deal. Well, so the, the impression I get basically is that Benitez is Newcastle's first choice, as has become relatively obvious. He's the, um, he's the only one I think they're talking to at the moment. Um, that They have thought about Moyes and Pearson and Brendan Rodgers, but, but Benitez seems to, it seems to be his to turn down, essentially. Uh, there are still, I think, some questions that he would like answers to. There's some guarantees or assurances maybe that, that he'd like, some concerns he still harbours. Uh, and the impression I get is that Newcastle won't sack McLaren until they've they've got someone lined up, uh, preferably Benitez. So th- there is still a chance uh, at what uh, nearly eleven o'clock on Thursday morning. There is still a chance McLaren will be in charge uh, for Leicester, but I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't put wouldn't put any money on it. In terms of the concerns that Rafael Benitez might have about taking over at Newcastle, um, I don't really know what his what his personal uh, agenda is or his or his personal concerns. Maybe you've got a better idea than I do. But uh, I have to say that if, if I was being approached by Newcastle to take over the job, I would have a lot of concerns about the kind of yellow pack, uh, false economy driven, no frills, demoralized nightmare that this <laughs> club is. It's, it seems like a, a kind of a vortex into which all hopes, uh, you know, disappear. Uh, and it could suck in uh, and, and chew up Rafa Benitez's career. Yeah, I think that so that that would probably be a far more eloquent uh, summation of one of his main concerns uh, than 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 he would he would offer or, or I would offer. Um, I think that's right. I think there is it is a risk. There's no question about that. I I don't even think the most kind of ardent Newcastle fan would see it as anything other than a risk. Look, you t- you should send in a kind of the 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 son of Renus Michels and Pep Guardiola and Johan Cruyff and and all the you know. Helenio Herrera, and they wouldn't necessarily be able to keep uh, Newcastle up. There's, you know, they've got 24 points after, with 10 games left. Sunderland go on a run, Norwich go on a run. It doesn't matter what Newcastle do, they, they'll still go down. And I don't think Benitez wants that on his CV. Um, not that he doesn't believe he can keep them up, but he knows you know, there's, there's a limit to, to what he can do. He's not a miracle worker. Um, I think the other thing is that is a more long-term worry, that kind of if, if he does go in, if he does keep them up... Uh, Will Mike Ashley, the owner, will he spend money? Will he allow him to reshape the squad? Will he be in charge of reshaping the squad, or, or will it sort of fall to to Graham Carr? What are the the um, the parameters in the transfer market? They seem to have decided they want to only recruit under twenty fives. Is that is that right for the club? I'm sure, most managers don't have a problem only recruiting under, players under the age of twenty five as a general principle. If it's a complete limitation, a sort of outright ban on anyone over the age of 25, it's not really ideal. It doesn't work. As you say, it's kind of a false economy. Um, I think he's worried that, that they've been too reliant on the French market in the last few years. They're, they're kind of, they've picked the richest seam there, and now they seem to be getting kind of second-class second French imports that aren't really working out. Graham Carr's well-respected, but it's hard to avoid the suspicion that kind of two or three really outstanding buys are masking a, like a dozen non-outstanding buys. So I think that those are all concerns and it'll depend really what, what Newcastle can say to him. I mean, if you're dealing with Mike Ashley and Mike Ashley says, yes, I will spend money, I think even then you, you take it with a pinch of salt, don't you? That is another thing I wonder about. I mean, you mentioned Graham Carr and the, the seam that he's been mining. Uh, and when you look at Newcastle's squad, I mean, obviously Graham Carr has been recruiting a lot of players in France. I can only remember Benitez 
when he was at Liverpool signing maybe two players from France. Uh, I mean, Nabil Eljar and David Ngog come to mind. Uh, Success is both of them. I mean, that's a match made in heaven. So, yeah, I think all, all managers kind of have, all managers, all technical directors, all directors of recruitment, all these fancy titles that we have now, they all have markets they prefer to work in for, for various reasons. It could be that they know them best. So obviously, Rafa knows the Spanish market better than he knows most markets, Italy as well. Um, Carr has contacts in France, so he's, he's, he's done well out of France. He's, he finds it relatively easy to work in France. It's, it could be that you know managers know certain agents who they trust, that they, that they take their recommendations more seriously. It's, everyone has kind of places that they lean towards. Clubs have, have markets that they think represent better value, and it, it's natural, but I think the, what, what you get from asking most of them about it is, is that if you limit yourselves to one, if you kind of only specialise in one, then that's not really enough because you, you're limiting your economy. Um, and I think that would be a concern for Benitez if he was told. I don't think he'll take the job if he's told that um, that Graham Carr will continue to do all of the recruitment and he will be presented as player with players as a head coach, and told to get on with it. Benitez, I think anyone who's studied his career, even the slightest glimpse of his career, that's not what Benitez wants. And Newcastle isn't alluring enough to to make him take that. If it was a you know, if, it, if it was Man City and Man City said, right, you can come in, your head coach, we'll give you the players, don't worry about the transfers, he'd probably say yes. Uh, if it's Newcastle, I don't think they're... I think he feels that he's probably at least deserves to be part of that that process, if not running it himself entirely. Yeah, I mean, OK, Benitez has... has uh, you know, this is something, as you said, if anyone looks at his career, I mean, all the way back to Valencia, he's always kind of wanted a lot of control. I don't know if it's always worked out necessarily very well, though, when... Benitez gets a lot of control. I wondered if over the last few years he might have started to reconcile himself more to the idea of, uh, you know, a, a director of football or transfer committee type model, which, you know, seems to be a general process that's happening in the game. Um, this idea that, uh, you know, these all powerful managers like Ferguson, like Benitez, you know, certainly was aspiring to be at Liverpool are kind of a thing of the past there. And this is just the way that, that a manager has to work. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think I don't think you can actually look at any manager anywhere and say that they have better than a 50% hit rate on transfers. Not really. Even someone like Guardiola, you know, Dimitro Chidrinsky signing for Barcelona for 24 million quid. You know, the, every manager makes mistakes. No, the managers aren't scouts. Scouts aren't managers. I think it has to be a process. It has to be kind of a, a collaborative, collegiate effort whereby you end up with, hopefully, the player who fits the bill in the most directions and not just everybody's second choice, uh, which is the danger. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you completely. I think this idea of I have to be manager, I have to have complete control over everything is outdated. Um, but having that collaborative approach depends on the right people being part of the collaboration. And I think that that's, a, that's probably a concern for a manager of Benitez's experience as well that when you've worked at clubs who are flawed, like Real Madrid, Napoli, Inter Milan, Liverpool, but you have worked with kind of people that you, you, you have come to trust and people who are kind of have been recruited to those roles because they are good at those roles, you then go to Newcastle and you are told, not even that it's a collaborative process, just that you're being dictated to, that it's, it's still unilateral, it's just not you taking the decisions. I think that's much harder to, to kind of reconcile yourself with. Mm. But I, I, I agree with you. I mean, in principle, I agree with you completely. I think that this idea... That that you need to have an all-powerful manager is now really really old-fashioned. And I actually think most clubs in England, for all that we generally don't like to kind of admit it, I think most clubs have moved quite a long way away from that. Just, even even United and Arsenal, who are the two kind of great holdouts of the you know we have a manager, 
don't think it's the same as it was 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, when you look at uh, Benitez's career, you, you kind of begin to feel so. He, he's been a little bit unlucky. I mean, like you mentioned the clubs being flawed. Things were going well at Liverpool for a while. Then he gets, you know, a couple of owners who it turns out he can't work with. He took over the Inter in circumstances which were actually less than ideal. I mean, they just completed their life's work and, and weren't really interested beyond that. And Real Madrid is, is essentially an unmanageable club anyway, and everyone probably accepts that. Uh, uh, and then there was the, the brief uh, time at Chelsea where, you know, he was he had his own sort of stadium rebelling against him and still managed to do quite well. Is Napoli the kind of outlier there? I mean, I wonder, should he have stayed at Napoli? Uh, what? Yeah, it's, I know what you mean. It's, isn't it, I think you have to kind of broadly, it, it's, it's more complicated than, than this analysis, but I think you'd, you'd, you'd struggle to find anybody who could make a reasonable case to say that Benitez didn't do a good job at Liverpool, whether he, he did a great job as a different debate, but he did a good job. He won the Champions League. He dropped them into the Champions League pretty much every year, ended on a sour note. Inter, I think, was a real misstep. I think he, he misjudged that both in terms of, as you say, the fact that the, the playing squad didn't have that kind of appetite to kick on after what they'd achieved under Mourinho. They were still loyal to Mourinho. I don't think he was fully committed to the job. I think when you come out of a really intense relationship, you, the, the, you know, the person you go out with on the rebound isn't, isn't likely to turn out to be the one you marry. Um, and I think that, that was a misstep. Real Madrid, I'd agree with you, unmanageable. Chelsea, I think he 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 was a success. He he did everything he was meant to do at Chelsea. And it's, it, I know they didn't obviously didn't like him, but he he did he did do a good job. He won a trophy. Napoli is maybe a little bit harder to to kind of summarise, isn't it? I think he did a, a reasonable was it, job. Was it his Napoli. decision? Was it his decision to leave there, or was it one of those where he left because if he hadn't left, they, they were about to sack him? I think it was more. I think it was more on 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 his terms. I think the issue that he had was that Aurelio De Laurentiis, the president, was running a sort of mini Galactico model, and Benitez, being Benitez, wanted defensive reinforcements of a certain caliber. De Laurentiis wasn't prepared to invest in defensive players. Uh, you look at what happened with the goalkeeper situation last season, where he wanted Pepe Reina. There was there was somebody else they were looking at, and they ended up with with two goalkeepers who were kind of meant to be the second choices but competing for a first, you know, the first team slot because De Laurentiis doesn't necessarily take a huge amount of interest in anything that's, um, that's not goal scoring. Uh, I, think, I think last season was a disappointment at Napoli. He maybe felt that, that he had taken it as far as he could under those conditions. I think he enjoyed working there. He enjoyed the challenge. He's not a massive fan of Italian football. I think he finds it very political, but, uh, which is weird because he, he quite likes politics secretly. I think. Yeah, he but loves, the, loves um, politics. He, I think he finds it a difficult environment to work in in Italy. I think it's it's more intense than England. Um, and then you have again you have the, the long-standing issue of, of his family who remain on the Wirral, and there comes a point where he wants to be closer to them. I think that's entirely understandable. Um, that they've made it clear that's kind of their home. That's the family home is is on the Wirral. They don't want to move. Just they're Rory, what is it? What is it that they love about the Wirral so much? Because they're what's they're not to love about the Wirral, Ken? <laughs> well, they're just a great sort of exceptions. I mean. There's, you know, it's like uh, most people who move from Spain to England end up complaining that while certain things about England are, are nice, they'd probably rather be in Spain if they could make the same kind of money, have the same type of job. And Rafael Benitez's family just just lap it up. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's slightly odd. And it's, it, I, I personally, I'm slightly biased, but I find, it, I find it very sweet. I think it's really nice that, I, I guess it's the, partly the age of, the, of, the, of his daughters to a large extent that they've, you know, I suppose they moved in 2004, 12 years ago. They would have been sort of five and 
three or five and two. So they've they've kind of grown up in England. They I think they regard themselves as certainly as Scouse, possibly as equally English and Spanish. And and Monty, his wife, obviously doesn't want to sort of interrupt their their childhoods by by moving them around to lots of different countries for jobs that are by their very nature temporary. So I. I can kind of understand that. So I think that that's held him back to an extent. I think that's made made his life a little bit less kind of easy uh, than than it would have been if if they'd sort of been following in his wake. And it's part certainly part of the reason he never settled in Milan, that his family wasn't there. I think Naples was a bit better, but but equally it didn't. It's it's obviously not ideal. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it has been an intriguing career. I, th- I think we don't necessarily know. Obviously, beforehand with Valencia, the, the huge success. I think Liverpool, you have to qualify as success. We, we maybe don't quite know where Benitez stands now. And I think he's probably conscious of that. And, and he's, as, you, as you mentioned before, whether he'd want to... The big risk is that he goes to Newcastle. They get relegated anyway. He looks like a failure. And that kind of, that kind of is maybe his last chance. And that's a big call to make on a really risky job. Rory Smith of The Times, thanks a million for joining us on the show today. What would you think, Kieran, if you were... A magpie, renowned as the most intelligent of birds yeah, of course, and yeah. of football supporters. Uh, do you think Rafa is the man to save? I would think I, I can't conceive of a situation where any any football professional would take the job of Newcastle United manager. So if someone, if we find someone dumb enough to take the job, <laughs> then let's go with it. I would say that's what I would say. I honestly think he should step step back. Oh, well. Isn't that the most obvious thing in the world? Yeah. I mean, the man, you can't go from Real Madrid. Now, obviously, pretty turbulent time in Real But you can't go from Real Madrid to relegation-threatened Newcastle. It's United. the opposite it, of the career trajectory of the guy in the goal movie. Yes. What was his name again? I didn't watch any of them. I'm he sorry. was kind of like a little um, chicharito. Yeah, type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't um, remember his name, though. But he, yeah, he, he went from Newcastle to Real Madrid, and Rafa would be going the other way. I don't know. I, I say... Back off, Rafa. Yeah. So, uh, you don't need to do this to yourself. Yeah, that's that would be that would be my opinion as well. We'll see how it goes. Um, you were talking about Martin Tyler at the start of the show. Oh, well, yeah. actually, I introduced Martin Tyler. Yeah. Um, and traveling through Central Europe, you're you're a, a, a diary, a Ken Early diary. Me, Central Europe. me in a train compartment with Martin Tyler and Jonathan Wilson. And one of the great and Jonathan Wilson. He was there too. Okay, well that's good. I'd kind of take the edge off because you know if it's two people, I kind of feel like you got to keep the right. conversation talking. And then maybe Martin, if there's three. Martin Tyler was, you know, he couldn't. He's one of the great gentlemen that I've ever spoken to. Yeah, he's, he's a lovely he's man. A, so you, so no, no problem, no uh, awkward shirt. And you know, if if we felt, if we felt that we should be silent for a few minutes, that was fine too. We were both comfortable with that. He worked in his notes. I read my my book or whatever, mm. and that was fine. Um, but I mean, it it put me in mind of one of the great thrills on Twitter, yeah. which is the George Hamilton Twitter account. Yeah. Uh, when he goes to Champions League games, it's amazing. Oh yeah, yeah. But like, say, I think he only uses the Wi-Fi at the stadium because I think maybe at around half six, you get like a flurry of how George spent his day in Rome. Or well, you got to be careful with the, the data roaming, you know. Well. George is a careful man when it comes to the data roaming, obviously, because they all kind of arrive one after another. But they're brilliant. Uh, you know, he's just hanging out in Rome, and you see like a photograph of, you know, a cup of coffee, and then it's like the Trevi Fountain. Yeah. And I, so that was before the Rome Real Madrid game yeah. a couple of weeks ago. So you see all these photographs, and then I was watching the coverage on RT, and he's there with Jim Beglin. Yeah. And I just, you know, it came to mind. Is, where's Beglin in all this? 
Yeah. You know, is Jim Beglin going to the Trevi Fountain with George <laughs> Hamilton? And I, I noted, I asked people on Twitter what they thought, yeah. and the consensus was that uh, they're just going to be at the stadium. Yeah. You know, which is probably, which is probably fair enough. You think Beglin just hangs out at the media center? Well, I, you know, who knows what Jim? Maybe George Hamilton is the kind of guy who just says, you know, that's great, Jim. At breakfast, I'm just going to go. You know, he kind of makes it playing without being rude. Yeah. You know, I'm going to go off now by myself. For well, do you not hours. think that's what you'd rather do? I mean, I don't know what they oh, that's, do. Oh, that's what I do, I think. Yeah. Even if, if I was co-commentating with you, I would, yeah. well. But like, yeah, see, look and see, yeah. see you later, you know. Yeah, we're working together for like three hours. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of time. I mean, in the meantime, I'd like to just go and be myself for a while. Yeah, it's just I'd like to have George in some of the photographs. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. You know, he doesn't go in for the selfie, really. So all you get is just kind of photographs of objects. Now, yeah. you know George is there because it's his Twitter account. But you don't know he's there. Wow. You're telling me George Hound? No. But you, you think you, if it was you, you would take a photograph with your own face, your own gormless face, no. taking up 70% of the photograph, and then just out of focus, Trevi Fountain in the background. That no. would be your No, that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying I'd like someone to take the photograph on George's behalf so that we could see George, you know, in his natural habitat. Okay. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, uh, that is it, I think, for this edition of the uh, Irish Times Second Captain's uh, podcast. We do have another show out today. Or we'll do a little bit later on uh, with US Murph talking about Donald Trump and um, yeah. Shane Shane Horgan and Matt Williams on uh, their differing views on Joe Schmidt's uh, coaching credentials. So listen out for that. Uh, Owen McTavish will be back on Monday, so I'm looking forward to seeing him. You probably are too, Karen, right? Uh, always, Ken. And, always. Uh, and the other, and we're looking forward to talking to you too. Uh, so talk to you, uh, talk to you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.